so the, the very last phrase of, that, um, of those verses that we looked at, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. Uh, that's where Paul begins his journey through the book of Colossians, and that's where he stays, and that's where he ends the question of preeminence, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all of creation, over all of the universe. We looked at that way back in January, and that is he kind of brought us down the funnel of thinking, so to speak, and got a lot more specific. He began to ask the question of preeminence in our lives. Is Jesus preeminent in my life? If I, if I claim to be a disciple of Jesus, and I realize everybody here this morning doesn't make that claim. There's some here that are wondering about it, uh, thinking about who Jesus may be. But for those of us who are here this morning that say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm his disciple, then the question is, is he preeminent in a practical way? In other words, is he Lord over all areas of my life? Or there are a few where I feel like he's Lord and others where maybe I'm, I'm not so sure of that or maybe I'm kind of holding back a little bit. Uh, or, or maybe I'm saying I want him to be preeminent, but I struggle a little bit. That's probably the honest answer. Well, Paul's going to end where he began with that question of preeminence. So Paul says in everything Jesus is preeminent, the question that I need to ask myself, the question that you need to ask yourself if you're a disciple of Jesus is, is that true in my life? Not the life of the person sitting next to you. Not the life of, 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 of your spouse or your kids or your coworkers. And we're actually going to talk about, Paul's going to talk about all of those people this morning. If you're married, he's going to have something to say about your spouse. If you work, he's going to have something to say about your coworkers. If, if you have children or if you are a child, he's going to have something to say to us about that. But it's not for the folks around you. It's for you. It's not for the congregation. It's for me. We need to ask the question internally, what does it mean for Jesus to be preeminent in my life if I am a disciple of Jesus? Colossians chapter 3, we're going to begin with verse 18. We're going to read to verse 1 of chapter 4, and then we're going to skip a couple verses, and we're going to read verses 5 and 6. Hear the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning as uh, a group of folks, many of whom claim to be your followers, claim to be your disciples. And we live in a world where uh, that is under a microscope. And there are a lot of different impressions about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, some are accurate, some are erroneous, uh, and a lot are probably somewhere in between. Father, it is not man's word 
that gives us life. It is not human philosophy that saves us beyond the grave. It is your eternal word. In particular, it is the word made flesh who came and dwelled among us. It is our Lord Jesus, who was unwilling to let us die and and stand in your presence under your wrath, which we so justly have earned, but rather he gave himself for us as a sacrifice for my sins, as a sacrifice for our sins, that we can move from death to life. And he calls us to follow him. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to give every fiber of our being to him in order that he might work his work of redemption in our lives and so that we may be a witness for him in this world. Lord, it is a good thing. It is a glorious thing. It is a beautiful thing for you to have preeminence in our lives, but it is that with which we struggle most, letting go of the reins, trusting that you are who you say you are, and that we can give you every circumstance, every thought, every word, every action. So Father, as we wrap up this series this morning, help us once again to dig into the Lord Jesus. Father, we may find some of these words offensive if, if we don't give them careful attention. And so we, we pray that you would forgive me my sin, don't let me stand in the way, and that Lord Jesus, you would come and that you would teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. Sermon in a sentence is very brief and to the point this morning. If Jesus is preeminent in my life, I am your servant on his behalf. If, and that's the key word there, Jesus is preeminent in my life, or we could say to the extent that Jesus is preeminent in my life is the extent to which I will be your servant on his behalf. Paul is calling all of us as disciples of Jesus to take a look in the mirror and ask this question of preeminence in a very practical way. This isn't kind of about theology and, and kind of, you know, you know, sitting down in an ivory tower and, and, and tossing around a lot of deep theological truths. This is getting down into the everyday, moment-by-moment uh, uh, standards, issues of our lives. We're going to look at the family this morning. We're going to look at the work place this morning. We're going to look at, at, at believers interaction with unbelievers. And Paul is calling all of us to this reflection. So let's begin with how will I serve you and in, in, in what context of Christ is preeminent in my life. And the first thing that Paul shows us is the servant of Jesus in the context of marriage. He begins by talking to wives and husband. Paul says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. That word submit has been abused in our culture in our day and age. And there are probably a lot of women that are sitting here right now and maybe even some men go, I, probably the women are going, I, I'm listening. What do you have to say? And the guys are going, I'm glad it's Tom up there and it's not me, right? Let's be honest. This is a very difficult phrase for us in 21st century America, partially because people have made this word to say something that that was never intended and never meant to say. Submission is not being a doormat. Submission is not playing second fiddle. Submission is, is, is not saying you're the greater and I'm the lesser. There's no place in scripture that teaches that. If you go back to Genesis and you read it carefully, when God had finished his creation and he looked at man, he said to himself in the context of the Trinity, we can't leave him by himself. <laughs> it's not good for him to be alone. We need someone who can be a partner with him. We need someone who will, who will compliment him and he will compliment her. And so God created the woman and, and put man and woman in that relationship. God's understanding is that he has created us to be partners with one another in the context of that partnership. What God says to a wife, if you want your husband to thrive, 
If you want him to do really well for your part, honor him. For your part, as much as you're following the Lord Jesus, offer him respect. Trust the Lord by trusting him. Paul says to husbands, you are to love your wives and not be harsh with them. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, if wives are called to, to, be honor, uh, to give honor and to give respect, husbands are called to self-sacrifice everything on behalf of their wives. The word there for love is, a, is the strongest word possible in the Greek language. Many of you know this phrase. It is an agape love. It is a self-denying love. God is Paul is saying through uh, God is saying through Paul in this text, husbands, the highest human relationship you have, the person that you are to cherish above all others, and the only person you are to cherish to this degree is your wife. The context that God gives us for for being servants to one another begins in the context of marriage. Why? Because it's, it's the most intimate relationship we will ever have all of our lives. And it's probably also because of that, the most difficult. If you're going to pour yourself into your marriage, if husbands are going to love your, your wives in this way, if we're going to follow Jesus with this understanding, of wives are going to trust the Lord by trusting their husbands, there are going to be challenges. First of all, the first challenge you have is the world says that's not the way to do it. The world says that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. You have to do your half, but you have to have the other person do theirs. And if they fail, if they fall short, then you're justified in saying that there's their problem that is causing angst in the relationship. You're to make sure that your rights are not violated. You need to make sure that you stand up for yourself. And then the Lord Jesus comes along. The Lord Jesus says, I want you to focus on your heart. I'll take care of your spouse. <laughs> I want you to focus on your life. I want you to listen to that which I'm calling you your attitude, your actions. I want you to become my servant in your marriage. I've tried it both ways, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I've tried it the way the world says. I've tried demanding my rights. I've tried demand, demanding that Cindy respect me. I might as well run full speed into that wall and, and, and think that I'm going to not get hurt, right? Okay. I've tried it that way. I've listened to the world from time to time. I've listened when the world says, stand up for your rights and make sure that, that she knows exactly what they are. And I can guarantee you, it does not work. You can try, but you will, like I, you will eventually fail at that because it's self-centered and it's demanding. And it puts me on the throne instead of doing what God called me to do, which is to cherish my wife above all else. So Cindy's been in Hawaii for the last week, right? She's been visiting our daughter, Katie, and, and her husband, Richard, and our little granddaughter, Mia, and she leaves late tonight on the red eye, and she gets in about 1.40 tomorrow afternoon. Now, I can tell you there are three things that are not true in my house right now that will be true by 1.40 tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> the sheets on the bed will be clean, <laughs> right? There will be some fresh cottage cheese in our refrigerator, and there will be a big bouquet of flowers on the countertop. Why? Because uh, I've been sleeping in the bed all week and it needs, you know, she deserves nice sheets and, and it feels so good when you've been traveling a long time to come home and just get in your comfortable bed, right? I cottage cheese because I know she's not going to want a big meal because when she travels it wears her out, but she loves just a little bit of cottage cheese and she loves flowers. I'm going to try to say to her when she gets home, I'll cherish you. I'm trying to make it a little bit easier for her to honor me and respect me so that we can work together on our relationship. Paul says, if Jesus is preeminent in your life, husbands, 
you will cherish your wife. Paul says, if Jesus is preeminent in your life, wives, you will honor your husbands. You will trust me by trusting them. So Paul begins with, with the most intimate relationship we have, but then he goes to a second, uh, one that kind of comes as a close second. In verse 20, Jesus speaks of the servants of Jesus who are children. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I would suggest that obedience in everything, that's a, that's a pretty tall order. I mean, could, could we get obey them 65.7% of the time? I mean, when I was 12 years old, I was so much smarter than my parents, it was shocking, right? <laughs> I, I just, you know, I coached them up, I helped them, you know, kind of come along. But when I was 13, four, I was brilliant. I've simply gotten dumber as life has gone on. This is a challenge for children, especially when we get to the age of 11, 12, 13, when we begin to reason. We begin to be able to think abstractly, and we begin to notice that dad doesn't actually have a Superman cape on, that, that mom doesn't always have the, the answer that we want to hear uh, about the boy that we're interested in or whatever, or the girl that we're interested in, whatever the case may be. And, and moms and dads begin to give a little bit, uh, you know, let you loose a little bit, but also continue to give you direction. It's hard to be obedient and everything. Why would that be part of my relationship with God? Why does Paul say that pleases the Lord? And I love that phrase. Because it's the notion of, of the father sitting back and just kind of gets a smile on his face. And he kind of chuckles to himself a little bit. He goes, you know what? They, they got it. They, they figured it out. I got a picture. Our grandson was born uh, on Friday. And I got a picture of uh, Nate and little Cole sitting in the chair uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the hospital. And I just sent him a text because he went to Indiana University. And from the year Nathan was a freshman at Indiana University till now, they've had pretty mediocre to bad basketball. So they beat Kentucky yesterday. So I, I sent him a note and I said, uh, for all you IU fans, I sent him a note and I said, you know, hey, the Hoosiers finally pulled it out. He sent me the picture back and I, he said, yeah, Cole got here just in time to see the, see the big victory, right? And I just smiled, right? I just chuckled. Why? I was pleased. Why was I pleased? Because I got to see my son being a dad. I mean, what a great gift that is. And when our heavenly father looks at children, who are seeking to give obedience to their parents, who are, who are beginning to understand that this is actually the life-giving choice. This is the, the smoothest pathway. They also uh, are teaching us as adults, what do our children teach us when they obey us? They remind us that we're to obey our Heavenly Father, that we're to follow Him. I don't know how many times I said to my children as they were growing up to our three kids, you just got to trust me in this. I know you think you understand a little better than me. I know you have a difference of opinion, but I kind of been down this road. I kind of know what to expect and you just need to trust me. And our heavenly father is saying to our children, trust me by, by trusting the mom and the dad that I gave you. They're not perfect. They're, they're not going to be flawless. They're, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to fall short, but in the context of my plan for your life, I've given you these believing parents. Trust me by trusting them. We're called to be servants of Jesus as children. But then Paul goes on to talk to, to moms and dads in verse 21 to remind us the importance of our roles and fathers. That, that could be written, parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Paul's pointing to the fact that there's a difference between discipline and provocation. Is there not? That they're not the same. There's a crucial distinction that must be made. Discipline creates a culture where obedience can thrive. 
Discipline is helping the other person. Discipline is, is teaching and listening and, and helping knowledge be applied. It is steady and it is sacrificial. It thinks of the other person first, right? If, if, if you are a parent or your kids are grown or you have kids right now, when you discipline them in, in the way that sometimes is negative, you don't jump up and down and go, how much fun is this? What do you say to yourself? I got to do this. We, we got to stay steady with this kid. We got, we got to help this son. We've got to help this daughter. We, we, we want to make sure that they can stand on their own two feet. We want to make sure when they walk out of our house at 18 or, or, or 19 or 32 or whenever it is that they walk out of our house, we, we want to make sure that they can, you know, they can balance a checkbook, they can, uh, that, that they can do some laundry, they can do a little cooking, that they know something about the Lord Jesus and his love for him. We want these good things for our children. Sometimes there's a positive discipline to that. Sometimes there's a negative discipline. But when the negative discipline comes, we hang in there with it. Why? Because we know that it will serve them, even if they don't like us in that particular moment. I remember one lesson that uh, my wife was a genius at raising children. Uh, and I remember one of, the, one of the things that would happen when our kids would get to be about 12 or 13 years old, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, something like that. We, we pretty much said, you can go to bed whenever you want to. We're, we're not going to tell you when to go to bed. So they would test this. They would come in and they would say, now, how late can, can I stay up? And we that's up to you. Stay up as late as you want to. What they learned, if, if they decided to kind of, you know, just see how late they could sit, what they learned the next morning when they had to get up and go to school, that the better question would have been, what time do I have to get up, <laughs> right? <laughs> Instead of how late can I stay up, right? So we didn't have kids that, that wanted to stay up late a lot because every morning when it was time for them to get up, whether they had to go to a part-time job or go to school or whatever, Cindy or, or, or Tom, or, you know, we were in the room saying, come on, you got to go. Oh, I stayed up late last night. Boy, that, that, that maybe wasn't the best choice you could have made. And you get to make that choice. Isn't that cool? You have this freedom, you know, and your freedom tomorrow, tonight will probably say 830 is a good time to hit the sack, right? Okay. Why? Because we don't want to be following them around when they're 25, tell them when to go to bed and when to get up. That's discipline. That's motivated by love. That's motivated by caring for them. Paul says there's a different side to this. It's actually pretty ugly. And, and Paul says you can be provocative with your children. Provocation is self-serving. It's filled with angst. And it's 100% of the time hurtful. When we provoke our children, like, well, I'm going to show them they're going to get theirs now. Who are we thinking about? Thinking about our children? Not even close. We're, we're, we're trying to find an outlet for our anger instead of taking it to the Lord, saying, Father, calm my spirit. Help me to love my children well. We just decide that we're going to play God and we're going to be hurtful and we're going to be vengeful. Praise God that he doesn't treat us like that. Uh, a lot of you know who know us well that uh, my wife Cindy's father died when she was about four years old of some type of leukemia and our new grandson's Cole Allen and Cindy's dad's name was Alan. So that's kind, of, that's kind of a fun thing. I needed to cry this morning, so I thought I'd throw that in there. But um, what was I? Oh, yeah, where was I going with that? But Lee, <laughs> stepdad, whose name was Lee, was a terrible man. He was an abusive man. And on Sundays after church, he would sit Cindy and her brother Alan and their mom down at the table. And for two hours, he would tell them everything they did wrong that week. That's not discipline. That's, that's hateful. That's spiteful. That's, that's abuse. We're, we're not called to be abusive. We're called to love our children in the Lord. And God says, if you're going, if Jesus is going to be preeminent in your life and you are a parent, then you will nurture 
your children. You will not provoke your children. But Jesus goes, or Paul goes on to say, not only servant in marriage and in being a child or in child rearing, but also the servant at work. Verses 22 through 24. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And I want to stop there for a minute because this is another one of those phrases, kind of like the, the whole notion of submission can get us a little bit off kilter if we don't understand it. This notion of bond servant, some of your translations might say slaves. Uh, what we need to understand in, in the ancient Roman world, that bond servant was a, per Paul actually calls himself a bond servant. Jesus actually uses the same language when he speaks about himself, when he says, the son of man didn't come to be served, to have bond servants, but he came to be a bond servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Paul is doing is he's helping us remember the attitude of Jesus. So a bond servant in Paul's day and age would be a person who voluntarily said, you know, my family is, is very, very poor, or I, I've come out of a very difficult financial situation, and I'm going to attach myself to another family. I'm going to literally give myself to them in service and the responsibility then of the family who accepted the service was to treat that person like a family member, to clothe them, to, to basically to pay them. That was, that was their salary. So this is not a notion of forcing someone uh, into an indentured life. This is, you, you have to take the American context out of this or it will not make sense. Paul is not talking about that kind of slavery. Paul is saying, if you're going to be the employee... If you're going to be the person that voluntarily says, I want to work for this person, I want to come under this person's overall umbrella, then you have some responsibility if you are a disciple of Jesus. The employee is to have an attitude of honest work ethic, out of honor to God. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, what? Fearing the Lord. That word fear means reverencing means that to bow before the Lord. How do I bow before the Lord? I give a fair day's work. If I'm an employee, if I work for someone, my responsibility in honoring Christ, if Jesus is preeminent in my life, then, then, I, then I'll get up and I'll be there on time and I'll work as if the Lord Jesus were my supervisor. And I'll serve with a good and glad heart the one who's employed me. It's not only an attitude of honest work ethic, but also the result is that there's a, a work ethic as if God himself gave us the task. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, well, I'm taking out the trash. I'm, I'm writing a sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm throwing some salt on the sidewalk. I do all of those things at Green Tree. I've done all of those this year. Uh, the trash is full. I'm like, nobody else is around. I can take the trash out. What's the big deal, right? Uh, it's snowing. We throw out a little salt. I'm the one standing there. I can do that. Whatever I might be doing, whatever you're doing, look at what Paul says. With everything Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I'm pretty sure if Jesus came this morning and said, hey, Tom, would you throw some salt out on the driveway? I, I, if, if, I thought you were going to try to butt in front of me and do that. I wouldn't let you, right? If Jesus said, could you go get me a cup of coffee? And Clarence goes, no, Tom, I'm going to go just get him Jesus a cup of coffee. I said, no, you're not. You just sit right down there next to Joanne and you just be still. I'm getting Jesus the cup of coffee, right? Jesus says, take that to work. Make that be your heart's attitude as you serve your employer. And remember the context. Look at verse 24. Knowing for a certainty, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ.
The context in which we go about our work is under the context of understanding that in service to Jesus, He will ultimately render our payment. He will ultimately be the one who provides for us for all of eternity. So that's on the employee side of the equation. What about on the employer side of the equation? What's the boss's task? What's, what's the supervisor's responsibility? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The primary concern of the employer is not just the bottom line. Now, part of the way you serve your employees is by having a healthy bottom line so you can continue to employ them and care for them and provide work for them. So the employer's job is to care for the employee, to make sure that justice and fairness are the the earmarks of your particular organization. Whether you're a, a, a for-profit private business, whether you're in the government, whether you're a non-profit sector like Green Tree Community Church, we have several employees here at Green Tree. The, the job of the boss is to be certain that the way their employees would describe them is that they are just and they are fair. I remember the first job I had out of college, I, I worked uh, in, as a student ministry director in a church uh, down in Tennessee, and we the church was in a very, very wealthy, affluent part of, of, uh, of Tennessee outside of Chattanooga. And about the third year I was employed there, I began to get a little bit of an understanding of what I was supposed to be doing and, and what this job was all about. And I began to kind of look at, at it in the bigger context. And I realized that I, that I was, and I wouldn't say this because it was me, but I was pretty significantly underpaid. Uh, I was able to kind of go back and look at what, you know, the industry standards were and that sort of thing. And I realized that I actually was not being treated fairly. So I went to one of the elders of that church who was kind of responsible for the student ministry area. And I pointed this out and I said, I really would appreciate if the church would, would go back and, and would look at this. And I was talking to a person who owned a corporation that employed seven, 800 people and was, it was doing very, very well. And this man looked me in the face. He said, Tom, don't you know if you're in ministry, you're supposed to be poor, right? Do you think I felt any justice or fairness about that? You think the next day it was a little bit harder to see Jesus in the context of going to work, right? My, my employer didn't help me any there as a brother in Christ. My, my employer w- did not treat me with fairness. He, he didn't hear me out. And I'm not here to complain about it and gripe about it, but as an example, our responsibility, because now I'm on the other side of that. Now I'm the person that, that helps with the hiring process at Green Tree. Now I'm the person that, that kind of says, yeah, I think that's the, the right person to bring in here. And we look at our pay very carefully. And we look at, at the benefits we provide very carefully. And Green Tree, uh, you're, you're not going to you know, get wealthy by the world standards, by America's standards, I should say, working in ministry. But we try to take very good care of the people that work here. And I know you should be proud as a person, if you, if you give financially to Green Tree, you should be proud of the way the leadership seeks to take care of the people in this congregation. Because we are very, very fair and very, very just. Why? Because we understand we have an obligation to the Lord Jesus. That's the context of our responsibilities. If we are responsible for others, we report to the Lord Jesus. So both employee and employer are under the same obligation. If Jesus is preeminent in my life as an employee or an employer, then I am your servant on his behalf. Then one other observation in this text We've looked at service in the family, service at work, but also what about being a servant of those who do not yet know Jesus? Look at verses four and five, or excuse me, five and six of chapter four. And actually look at verse six first. 
Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. People are going to have questions about the Christian faith. They're either going to have questions because they've just kind of observed it casually, or maybe they've been studying it for a little while. Maybe they took a class in college over it. But, But in some way, the gospel of Jesus is going to raise questions in their lives. Maybe they have questions because they've seen your life and you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but you ought not be surprised. And I ought not be surprised if somebody says, Hey, are you a Christian? Can I ask you a couple of questions? All right. Now, if that happened to you today, how would you feel? I know a lot of say, Oh boy, I, <laughs> I'm gonna go home, and watch the basketball. And hopefully nobody, I don't want to say the wrong thing, right? That tends to be our reaction. I wouldn't want to lead anybody astray. Well, Paul says, you got to know the question's coming. So get ready. Part of the way you serve the Lord Jesus is you serve the unbelieving world by being able to to answer questions that they will ask. So so how do we do that? We'll now go back to verse 5 for just a second. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is simply saying, here's what God says, and therefore our reaction is. And you put those two together. So for example, if a person's an unbeliever, God says, you're, you're a sinner. You're lost. You're not only lost, you're under my wrath. You, you are rightly condemned because you have violated my holy law and you've hurt others in the process. But what does God also say? Come to me for grace and forgiveness. Let me, let me show you the sacrifice that my son made on your behalf. Put your faith in me. That's the wise thing to do at that moment is to trust Jesus. We need to be prepared to give that answer. What if somebody says, you know, my marriage is struggling and I heard the pastor talk about, you know, honor and and cherish and I don't know if that could ever be true in my marriage. What do I do? We need to be ready to have that answer. We need to be ready to offer counsel and care and compassion so that folks will know we need wisdom is simply knowledge applied. And what is the best thing to say given that our time is limited? given the fact that, that we don't have a whole lot of time. So Paul says, just understand you need to have wisdom because you have to make the best use of the time. So yesterday uh, morning, uh, about 15 of us along with about, about 10 folks from Unity Baptist across the street, we got together and we walked the neighborhood and we handed out flyers. And if people weren't home, we had them in the shape of door hangers. We could put them on their doors and inviting them to come to Easter uh, service as well as tell them about a block party we're going to have in May. Uh, and Anthony Lester and I got to walk around together yesterday uh, with Calvin from across the street. And we hit about, I don't know, probably about 40 houses and, and, uh, and half the people didn't answer. They weren't home. So we hung a lot of door hangers, but we came to one door and we knocked on the door. And, and if you want to watch a master at this, go with Anthony. He is, he is tremendous. And every time I was kind of getting up to the sidewalk to go first, he'd walk by me and try to be the guy to knock on the door. And one of the, one of the uh, questions that the uh, pastor read across the street said that we should ask is, do you have a church home? Uh, and, I, and I kept forgetting, but Anthony asked it every time. So we're at the door and we're, we're, we're talking to this fella and Anthony's there and I'm kind of here. And Anthony says, do you mind if I ask you, do, do you have a church home? And the fella said, no, I'm an atheist. And Anthony went. <laughs> I'm like, what did he say? <laughs> Anthony. Have an answer. No, I'm not. I am not. He had so many great answers. He's tremendous. But I just kind of said quickly, we love atheists at Green Tree, right? One of our elders at Green Tree, and I won't won't tell you his name because he'd be mad at me if I did. Uh, But years ago, he was driving down Manchester Road and he saw the sign out in front and he pulled in with his family. And when he pulled in the parking lot, he was an atheist. 
And a few weeks later, when he left, he was a disciple of Jesus. He didn't stay a few weeks. He kept coming back and forth. But a few weeks later, he, he came to Christ. So I said, we love atheists at Green Tree. We, come on, we would love to have you. The time was short. He closed the door, <laughs> right? Conversation over. But at least we got a, he got a chance to see two guys smiling at him, three guys, Calvin was with us, who said, hey, we'd, we'd be happy to have you. God calls us to be servants of Jesus with unbelievers. And notice the, the way he calls us to shape this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, right? You take grace, you take street smart, <laughs> And you put it together for effective communication for the gospel. How do we apply this study as we wrap up this morning? Let me offer just a couple of thoughts for that. The first one is where we started. And I think where, where Paul, his chief concern, if nothing else in, the, in this study, this is where Paul is going, is preeminence of Jesus, the cornerstone of my life, or just kind of a catchy phrase, right? And my guess is, if you're like me, that you can see areas of your life where you go, boy, I'm rock solid with Jesus there. I'm, I'm trusting the Lord there. But, I, but I've, I've had this one area over here, or two areas or three areas where I'm really struggling, where it's really just difficult for me to put my faith in Christ. Share that with others. Let others pray for you about that and encourage you. But the preeminence of Jesus more and more and more needs to be the cornerstone of our lives. Secondly, where are what we call growth opportunities? We just went through our annual reviews at Green Tree because our, our financial year is April 1st to March 31st. So we do our end of the year uh, is in, the, in March. We've been, doing, uh, we've been doing our performance reviews. And in your performance review, you get growth opportunities, right? That's a really nice way of saying, here's an area where you're not doing too good and you need to kind of tighten that up a little bit, right? But you probably have growth opportunities in your life when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a list as long as my arm, single space of growth opportunities in my life. Where are they? Am I willing to acknowledge them? Again, am I willing to ask other brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for me, to encourage me, to hold me accountable? But if you're here this morning and, and you are seeking to faithfully follow Christ, I want to give you one other challenge that is maybe going to scare you a little bit. And I'm being serious about it. I'm not just throwing it up there because I think I ought to have three points of application. I really want to challenge you in this. Why don't you take this study in Colossians and find a family member or a friend who's exploring the claims of Jesus and teach it to them. Say, hey, how about you and I do a 10-week study on the book of Colossians? We've we, we learned it at church, and, and, I, and I'd love to share it with you. Maybe it's a person who's already a believer, but maybe they're just younger in their faith. It doesn't necessarily have to be an unbeliever. But if you want to know if you really have learned it and apply it, try to share it with someone else. It's only when we dig into Jesus and he becomes preeminent in our lives, that we'll be able to go on to the next step and to branch out in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this word of, of encouragement and challenge in Colossians. Father, we thank you that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us the truth, to call us to dig into Jesus not to our philosophies, not to our efforts, not to our energies, but to the Lord Jesus and to make him preeminent in our lives. Father, I pray for us as a congregation. I, I witness every day where Jesus is preeminent. I see the faith of, of many of the people in this room and I am, I, I'm a recipient of the blessing that comes from that. My family has been a recipient of the blessing that comes from that. But Father, we also have growth areas. We have areas where, where you're not preeminent, where the Lord Jesus is, we're, we're, we're just either pushing him out of the way or we're, or we're just not listening very carefully. 
So Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts this morning. And that in all things, Jesus would have preeminence. For his glory, for our good. We pray in his name. Amen.